welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning. Good morning. Well, last night, just last night, after our pool party, I took our dog Ellie for a walk in the Liberty Housing Development, which opened in 2017 and is built on some of the old Lorton Reformatory grounds. The prison, for those of us who haven't been here long enough to remember it, had a reputation for violence, including far too many suicides and closed nearly 20 years ago now in November 2001. It's just two and a half miles down the Silverbrook Road from where we had our pool party yesterday. In Liberty, guard towers still stand. Old prison housing on the outside looks just as it did during the prison years, but on the inside has been converted into modern loft-style apartments. And new townhouses and single-family homes have been designed to partially reflect the appearance of the older prison buildings. The old Lorton Prison Chapel still remains and is available for rent. The community and or developers decided they wanted it to retain its original purpose and not be converted into housing. It's a place where the old is juxtaposed with the new. And, but the old exteriors belie interior transformations. And if you go to Ellie's favorite field in back of the development, which consists of a marshy reservoir and wild grassy hillsides that provide hiding places for rabbits, you see even more of this juxtaposition with older meadows, woods, and abandoned woods and silo, and abandoned roads, excuse me, and silos that were all part of prison property stretching off for several miles, mixed with newer features from at most a decade and a half ago, the Cross County Trail, the Laurel Hill Golf Club, a gated retirement community, and the South County High School. The old coexists with the new, and the new is uncommonly transforming the old, so that what was once an area marked by too much violence is now essentially peaceful. Well, our epistle reading today is also concerned with the juxtaposition of the old and the new. Namely, the need to put off our old self, as Paul puts it in last week's reading, Ephesians 4.22, and put on the new self, as we see in verse 24. The old self is our sinful life before we turn to Christ in repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The new self is the life that Christ calls us to as followers of him. That general instruction becomes extremely practical in this week's reading as Paul instructs us to replace bad character traits with virtues. We are to put off falsehood and put put on truth-telling in verse 25. We are to put off long-lasting anger and put on keeping short accounts, not letting the sun go down on our anger and not giving the devil a foothold, as in verses 26 through 27. We are to put off stealing and other forms of dishonest gain and put on honest work, verse 28 tells us. 
We are to put off speech that injures others and put on speech that builds them up, according to verse 29. And we are to put off bitterness and the multitude of potential attitudes and actions that accompany bitterness and put on instead compassion, tenderness, and forgiveness in verses 31 through 32. These are the practical admonitions that Paul gives the saints in Ephesus in this passage. And notice that they all deal with our relationships with other Christians and other people in general. And both in and alongside these commands, there are three larger principles that Paul gives those of us who are followers of Christ. Number one, choose between two ways. George E. Harper, in the International Bible Commentary, notes that Paul's dichotomies in this section represent an early form of a two-ways theology or spirituality that would not too long afterward become more pronounced in early Christian writings not found in our Bible, such as the Didache. One way, the old, is the way of death. The other way, the new, is the way of life. Now, this theme, or or theme similar to it, were not new in New Testament times. If we think back to the Old Testament, we might, for example, think of the psalmist contrasting the ways of the righteous and the wicked in Psalm 1. Paul urges us here, in all of the examples in our passage this morning, to make a conscious, if difficult, break from the past, from our old selves prior to knowing Christ, to our new selves after coming to Christ. The late Anglican evangelical theologian John Stott, in his commentary, The Message of Ephesians, notes that when Paul says to put off falsehood in verse 25, the Greek word for falsehood can refer to idolatry. In other words, in putting off our old selves and putting on our new selves, we are changing from idolatrous behaviors to ones worthy of worshipers of the true God. And thinking through this, this means that how we act toward and treat other people, whether we are speaking falsely or truly, whether we are continuing to harbor anger or letting that anger go, etc., reveals whether we are rightly worshiping God. Now, this idea might seem puzzling at first, but it makes sense when you consider that all human beings are created in God's image, and some are members of Christ's body, the church. Now, along these lines, one of the early church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, apparently thinking of Paul's words about anger in this passage, said that God gave us anger in order for it to be directed at the devil. So, um, our fellow human beings are not to be the target of our unrestrained anger, malice, and other characteristics that Paul instructs us to discard. And this goes along with Jesus' command to love our enemies and to do good even to those who would persecute us. Now, in today's world of social media, sadly, Paul's instructions often are not heeded among Christians. Nevertheless, we are called to be different. So number one, choose between two ways. Number two, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by following our old ways. We see this in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
What grieves the Holy Spirit? Now, some commentators see verse 30 as connected directly with verse 29, so that, is, so that it is specifically our unwholesome or corruptive speech, translations vary in terms of the adjective used, that grieves the Holy Spirit. Others, though, associated with all the old ways of doing things that Paul outlines in this passage. So taking that broader understanding as our start, let us consider that our behaviors contrary to Christ's desires grieve the Holy Trinity, the entire Holy Trinity. The Old Testament tells us in multiple locations of God's repeated anguish over Israel's rebellion against him. The Gospel writer Luke relates how Jesus longed achingly for Jerusalem to repent. And here we are told that the Holy Spirit grieves over our old ways of doing things, our idolatrous actions. Now that grief should particularly concern us because the Holy Spirit is the seal, the down payment, if you will, of our full redemption that is coming at the restoration of all things, as we saw a few weeks ago in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Now all of this invites us to consider the love that God has for us. The Holy Spirit is a gift of love given to Christians because the Son asked the Father to send us the Holy Spirit, as John's Gospel tells us. The grieving on the part of the Holy Trinity is because of God's love for his people and due to Christ's love for his body, the church. So we as individuals and the church corporate are loved beyond measure. The Old Testament tells us poetically that love in and of itself is, quote, as strong as death, unquote. And, quote, many waters cannot quench love, according to songs, Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. How much more true of that, how much more true is that, excuse me, when we consider the Holy Trinity's love for us? We know from the Old Testament that the many waters of the flood in Noah's time did not quench God's love for humanity. Instead, his steadfast love caused him to send his only begotten son to live and die as one of us. And as Christians, we know that through Christ, we have a love that is not just as strong as death, but greater than it. For our redemption delivers us from death and the grave. So given the extravagant love God has for us and for the church corporate, may we not grieve the Holy Spirit by following our old ways. So number one principle, choose between two ways. Number two, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by following our old ways. And number three, imitate Christ by walking in the new way of love and acting self-sacrificially on behalf of others. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, with his outstretched arms on the cross, loved us and all of humanity so much that he gave himself up for all who would look to him for salvation. And of all the virtues that we can put on as part of our new self, the greatest one, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, is love. The two great commands that we have been given by God and that we hear in the summary of the law each week, both revolve around love. Love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And love our neighbors as ourselves. And we have already considered briefly how Jesus commanded us to love even our enemies and our persecutors. 
In fact, the early Christian writing that I mentioned earlier, the Didache, says that by loving our enemies, we cease to have enemies. Let us think about that for a moment. Even if people treat us wrongly, we can choose not to view them as enemies and choose not to make them into ones by loving them. What does this love look like in a practical sense? Well, many of us here are married with children. A large part of imitating Christ involves the self-sacrifice that parents make on behalf of their kids. Then there are practical needs that we can meet of people we know. And then there are heartbeats that God gives each one of us. But in any of its forms, and there can be a million others, the love to which God calls us requires self-sacrifice. Allow me to mention two brief examples. Actually, I'll mention three because we saw, I saw a third one on the way here. Um, the first one, since it was just this morning, there was this man at near the 495 and 644 Springfield Interchange who was homeless. Now, he had a big sign around his neck. And at the top, and I couldn't read all of it because we were at a distance in the car, it read Proverbs 1722. I think, I think it was 1722. I could be wrong on that. I couldn't totally read it. Um, but basically, it quote, then it quoted the verse about lending, said the lending applies to the homeless, and said, God bless you, in big letters. Well, out there on this middle little aisle, little, um, whatever you want to call it, this little um, area in the middle of the road, he was here, and I would say he was probably an African-American man in his 40s or 50s, mask on, but there was also a 20-something African-American man, I would say. And he also had a mask on. But watched them, and they were talking, and at first I thought they were together. But then all of a sudden, I saw the two of them bow their heads and pray. And I believe that the younger man was there talking to the older man and listening to his story and then praying with him. Um, because it was the older man who had the sign around his neck. And so that's a small self-sacrifice of time, of energy. Now, second example. This last week I got to talk with a coworker I'll call David. David is an African-American Christian, probably about my age or a little younger. I do not know him that well, but we have had some conversations and I have heard other coworkers speak of him enough to give me a good sense of the type of person he is, at least on some level. David is humble in character. And professionally, and professionally reasonably high up in the company. But he has lost some high responsibilities in part due to my company's constant reorganization. And while people admire his character, he also seems, from my perspective, from what I can tell, to be somewhat underappreciated as a worker. Perhaps that is because David is motivated by the plight of people he sees around him. He sees business not primarily as a profit-making enterprise, but as an opportunity to give people who need employment jobs. He, and if you want to hear him get passionate, listen to him talk about his ministry work, conducting Bible studies with prisoners. Just a few days ago, when I was talking with him, he admitted to me, you know, really this job is just a means to an end. It's a way of enabling me to be able to help other people. Now, perhaps placing priority on loving people and helping them be reconciled to God to some extent over his job might be hurting his career. But 
Loving others through providing them with jobs and ministering to prisoners are David's passions and ways that he puts on his new self. My third story involves Madeline. She was the wife of a United Methodist pastor, Witty, who was my mother's half-brother. Witty was stricken by Parkinson's disease back in the 1950s when he was still in his 40s. His situation deteriorated all too quickly, and Madeline had to open a gift shop out of her home in order to bring an income while also raising two children. By the time I came to know Witty and Madeline in the 1970s, he was wheelchair-bound, spoke only incoherently, and often drooled. Yet, Madeline worked in the gift shop and watched over him at the same time and cared for him, wiping his saliva and helping all of his daily needs, helping him with those needs. She was his caregiver for close to 40 years. Witty died in 1991 and Madeline in 2007. I cannot imagine what dreams she must have given up to serve her husband including, I would assume, dreams of serving Christ. But she walked in love, just as God loved us, loved us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And she served as an inspiration to others. I was shocked to find in a 2011 Navigators Parachurch Ministry newsletter a story another, about another woman dealing with a husband's serious illness and her resolve that she could carry on with Madeline's example in mind. They lived in a nearby town to Madeline. So, walking in love as Christ loved us involves daily, hourly, and minute-by-minute decisions. We might well identify with Bono, who in U2's song Breathe says, Every day I die again and again I'm reborn. Every day I have to find the courage to walk out into the street with arms out, got a love you can't defeat. Make no mistake, it takes courage to daily love others, particularly in situations where they are very ill, face other serious challenges, or might not wish us well. Such love can involve bearing a painful cross. But we carry with us a love that can't be defeated, and that's because that love is Christ, not ours. So, like the land that formerly housed the Lorton Reformatory and now contains the Liberty Development, we are undergoing transformation. In fact, as our tagline here at Corpus Christi Anglican says, we seek to be a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. That transformation only comes through God, and it comes as we choose between the two ways of our older self and our newer self, as we put off our old self with a desire not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And as we put on our new self and imitate Christ by walking in love self-sacrificially. Amen.